Hip hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC. You're listening to Season 2 of Breakdown, a special podcast by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. This season's program, Death in a Hot Car, Mistake or Murder? Go to myajc.com slash breakdown for photos, videos, and additional background. Previously on Breakdown. Well, he was saying, oh my God, oh my God, my son is dead. Oh my God. He was screaming. He was, he was very hurt. I heard the desperate cries of a father who had just lost his son. The biggest mistake anyone can ever make is to think that this cannot happen to them. And that really is what people believe, but it's not true. He was having um, up to six different um, conversations with um, different women. Uh, the most common term would be sexting. Welcome to episode two of season two of Breakdown. We're breaking down the case of Justin Ross Harris, who left his 22-month-old son Cooper in the back of his car to die. Hello, I'm Bill Rankin. I cover legal affairs for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. In episode one, we laid out the strength of the state's case against Harris. What we established is that Harris may or may not have killed his son on purpose. But he left behind the filthiest trail of breadcrumbs you can imagine. Harris, we told you, has a sex problem. He was married and had a son but he was also sexting and exchanging lewd photos with multiple women on the day his son sat dying in the hot car. Don't forget, jury selection in Harris's trial is scheduled to begin April the 11th. As is often the case in criminal prosecutions, a lot of what's going to come out at trial has already played out in pretrial hearings. Harris has covered himself up in so much slime that it may seem as if the prosecution is looking for a slam-dunk conviction. And it may get one. But the case isn't exactly airtight. In fact, a lot of air has escaped from it. So, let's examine the problems in the state's case. He had a 2011 Hyundai Tucson. It's a four-door SUV, but it's a small SUV. Most of the mornings, Cooper was in a rear-facing child seat. That's Cobb County Police Detective Phil Stoddard, the lead investigator in the death of Cooper Harris. He testified during Harris's probable cause hearing on July 3, 2014, 15 days after Cooper died. Stoddard's bombshell testimony about Harris's sexual deviance cast a whole different light on this case. It changed from being about the tragic death of a toddler to being about a sleazy creep who killed his little boy. Stoddard provided key testimony about what happened the morning of Cooper's death, and I've found some of it to be quite alarming. Why? Because some of it was just wrong. Will this matter in the overall scheme of things? I don't know. 
But this goes to the credibility of the prosecution's lead investigator, which goes to the credibility of the prosecution's whole case. So, where did Stoddard go awry? I've come up with at least five instances from his testimony. Before we get to the first one, remember, on the morning of Cooper's death, his father had taken him to Chick-fil-A for breakfast. They left the restaurant at 9.19 a.m. Harris had a decision to make. At the first intersection, he either had to turn left to take Cooper to daycare or head straight through the light to Harris's office at Home Depot, less than a quarter mile away. Of course, he went straight to work and backed his car into a parking space, leaving Cooper inside as the temperature outside soared into the 90s. Here's the first potential problem in Stoddard's testimony. From the time he left the Chick-fil-A to that light where he had to make that decision, have you driven that distance? I have. How many times? Mm, 10 at least. How long does it take to get from having left the Chick-fil-A parking lot to that light? 30 to 40 seconds. So 30 to 40 seconds from the time he has strapped his child in, kissed him, and then he says forgot. Correct. I drove that route too, but my results were quite a bit different than Stoddard's. Backing out of my place. I have to make a right turn onto Cumberland Parkway. Then I have to make a U-turn. I'm gonna wait for some traffic before I turn right. This is the actual unedited time of the drive. Okay, I'm at the U-turn. I made this drive at 9.45 a.m. That's about 25 minutes after Harris made it the day Cooper died. A lot of other people making U-turns too. That's, that's an illegal U-turn. I'd rather not be doing this, but this is the way he drove it. A lot of traffic this morning. I've already been out here at least twice as long as Stoddard, and I'm not even finished yet. Still waiting, still waiting. Finally, the traffic cleared, and I could make the turn. Okay, now I'm coming back up to the intersection of Paces Ferry Road. Now, if I were going to take Cooper to daycare, I'd be taking a left. But instead, this morning, he goes straight. And here's the point of where I would stop. It's a minute and 52 seconds where I would have either turned left or gone straight to his work. So there it is, a minute and 52 seconds. Stoddard averaged 30 to 40 seconds. I did it four times, and the trip time ranged from 1 minute 15 to almost 2 minutes. I'm not saying Stoddard's necessarily wrong. I don't know what time of day he made his test runs. But for me, on a busy weekday morning with a lot of traffic, the same conditions under which Harris would have been driving, I just couldn't make the trip nearly that fast. My times were double to four times longer than his. Here's point number two. You talked about this U-turn and then going to a light where you make a decision to either go to work or turn to the daycare. Yes, sir. Okay, the U-turn, about how far is it to get from the Chick-fil-A to this U-turn? Uh, seconds. When you get to this U-turn, what direction would he have had to turn to see uh, the oncoming traffic and then make the U-turn? It's a left-hand U-turn. He would have had to look to his right. And what is to his right? It would have been the car seat, which is visible in between the two seats. Um, 
Not really. You're driving down Cumberland Parkway from Chick-fil-A. When you make that U-turn, you're not looking to your right, as Stoddard testified. At least I wasn't. You're looking straight ahead. First, to see whether the way is clear for you to do the U-E. If you look to your right, you stand a good chance of getting hit. Why? Because when you're making that U-turn, there are cars making a right turn onto the roadway right where you're making the U-E. You have to look left at those cars to make sure you don't have a wreck. You don't look to your right. Now, that doesn't mean that Ross Harris didn't notice his son or even that he didn't know his son was there. But it does mean that Stoddard's testimony might have been a bit misleading. Visualizing it makes no sense. That's criminal defense attorney Jack Martin. He represented Richard Jewell. He was a suspect in the bombing during the 1996 Olympics in Atlanta. Jewell was cleared of wrongdoing. Martin says he can't understand why Stoddard testified that Harris must have seen his son when making that U-turn. Because if you were turning left and there was traffic, oncoming traffic, your focus is going to be on the traffic coming towards you. And if there's a side street that's traffic coming out of that, your next focus would be on the left where that traffic may be coming out. There'd be no reason at all to be looking to the right. Indeed, it would be dangerous to be looking to the right. Stoddard also offered extremely damaging testimony about what happened when Harris and three of his buddies went out to lunch that day. One of his friends drove. On the way back to work after their meal, they made a quick stop so Harris could pick up some light bulbs. When they returned to the office parking lot, they dropped Harris off in front of his car. So when he comes back to the car, what does he do? What the happens? car pulls up, um, and from interviewing the two friends he went to lunch with, um, he, they pull up, he gets out of the car, they immediately take off. Um, you can see him walk up to the car, he approaches the car from the driver's side, approaches his car, opens up the driver's side door, and he kind of tosses the, um, the light bulbs inside. He's all the way inside the frame, but he just kind of tosses the light bulbs inside the car. When he approaches, does it appear, is this video, can you describe to the judge how it appears he reaches in and where his head is? When he reaches in, he comes up, he opens up the door, and as he's reaching in, he kind of turns his head a little bit. Um, he's in there, he has a clear view, and he kind of turns his head and then just tosses the light bulbs into the car. That was one of Stoddard's most damaging statements of the day because it indicates that Harris had to have seen Cooper inside the car and did nothing about it. Damaging and also completely wrong. I've watched the Home Depot security video of the office parking lot that day. You can see Harris's friend drop Harris off near his SUV, and you can see Harris walk up to his car. What the tape then shows is that Harris's eyes remained above the SUV's roofline as he tossed the light bulbs into the front seat. Stoddard, you recall, said, quote, he's all the way inside the frame, unquote. I can't for the life of me understand how he could say that. It's just flat out wrong. Harris was never all the way inside the frame. Only his arm and shoulder reached inside the SUV. The video shows that it took three seconds for him to open the door, toss the light bulbs inside, and then close the door. Jack Martin, who was not involved in the Harris case, said if Stoddard's testimony went unchallenged, it would have been devastating. Well, if the defense is that he did not know or had forgotten that his son was in the car, it would be terribly incriminating for them to prove that he had his head inside the car with a clear view of his son in the back seat at lunchtime. Um, that would completely refute that uh, defense. 
So it would be an incredibly incriminating fact and might be the end of the, any possible defense on that. Let's listen as Prosecutor Chuck Boring continues his questioning of Stoddard. He shuts the door, um, turns around, and immediately starts walking into the Home Depot. At some point as he's walking back away from that car, does anyone else walk by him, and how does he react? Yeah, it appears another, we'll say just another person, um, passes him walking towards his car as he's walking away from his car. As that person approaches him, he stops. Um, he kind of stands there for a little bit as the guy walks past him. You can see that man walk up towards his car. He starts a little bit. Justin starts a little bit. He stops. The guy walks past the car, and then Justin gets on the phone and goes inside the, the Home Depot. The video does show Harris pass a man who is walking toward the car. In fact, the man walks through the open parking space next to Harris's SUV. He passes within three or four feet of the vehicle. If he had turned his head and glanced inside the SUV, he almost certainly would have seen Cooper. The video also shows that Harris does not appear to be paying attention to that person. He does stop briefly, but his eyes are on his cell phone, which he pokes at with his free hand. We can guess what he was doing. And we can also guess how distracting that might have been. He never looks back at the man who walked past his car. Harris also walks past another man who was headed in the direction of his car. For a second time, Harris does not seem to notice the passerby. Here's Jack Martin again. Well, similarly, it's the same thing. It would be as if he was worried that somebody would notice that his son was in the backseat of the car. Uh, and that shows the suspicious behavior which contradicts his defense. You know, another thought is that if, in fact, he did see his son back in the car, and if his plan was at that point to say, oh, my God, I made this terrible mistake, why not do it then? Why not make that statement at that point? Now we come to the fifth and final discrepancy, what Stoddard called the smell of death. Harris left his office at 4.15 that day to meet his friends for a 5 o'clock movie. He got into his car with the body of Cooper inside and he drove two miles. It was at this point, Harris has told police, that he first realized his son was still in the car seat. He turned into Acres Mill Square Shopping Center, screeched to a halt, and pulled his lifeless son out of the car. This is the point that has always made me think that Harris must have known his son was in the car when he got into it at 4.15. And that's because of Stoddard's testimony at the probable cause hearing. Did you speak with Lieutenant Farrell in this case? I did. Lieutenant Farrell, uh, what's his job? Lieutenant Farrell's my um, immediate supervisor, um, unit commander. Now, did he approach the car at any point at the scene? He did. Um, about how long after the defendant had pulled over? Over an hour. And when he approached the car and stuck his head, did he stick his head in? He did. When he did that, did, was there anything of note that he noticed an hour and 20 minutes after with the door open? Yeah, there was a foul order or, or a stench coming from the vehicle. Now, did you actually access that vehicle later as well? I did. And you went inside that vehicle hours later. Did you notice anything? Yeah, it, it smelled like it was a foul order. Um, it smelled like decomposition or death. This seems indisputable. Cooper would have been dead about five hours when his father got into the car at 4.15, Cobb police have said. If there was a stench in the vehicle, Harris would have noticed it immediately. If he had then why did he drive two miles down the road before claiming to notice his son? Was that all just an act for the police? 
The implication is that Harris knew his son was dead when he got into the car and faked up the sudden discovery two miles later. I'm saying there's a good chance he didn't smell anything because there wasn't anything to smell. That's Dr. Joe Burton. For 25 years, he was chief medical examiner for much of Metro Atlanta. In his time, Burton figures he has performed 10,000 autopsies. He now works as a private consultant on death cases. I doubt if he would smell anything because you've got to get bacterial growth is what causes the smell. It's methane that you're smelling. It's from the uh, actual rotting of your body. Five hours later, the body's beginning to decompose, but it's not to the point you would really probably smell anything, even in the heat. If it was a big old fat person, you might, but this baby has very little body fat, and that's what smells the worst is the decomposing body fat. It would surprise me if the child smelled enough that you would uh, notice it when you got in, especially if you immediately turned on the air conditioner. Turn on the air conditioner, it blows everything away from your face because that's where I've got mine aimed is at my face, all the vents. I then told Burton what Stoddard said he smelled, decomposition or death. I've done 10,000 autopsies. If you ask me, Dr. Burton, what does death smell like, I couldn't tell you. I think it's also important to let you know what the Cobb County Medical Examiner's autopsy report said about Cooper Harris. It noted that while Cooper's disposable diaper had the presence of urine, it made no mention of the presence of feces, which certainly would have smelled if left in the hot car for hours. To double-check about whether Ross Harris would have been confronted with an overpowering foul odor, I also talked to Dr. Donald Ray. Now retired, Ray served 23 years as King County's chief medical examiner in Seattle. He also taught pathology at the University of Washington. He concurred fully with Burton's assessment. No, I don't think there would be a, a, a terrible odor. There may have been some sort of odor. But um, uh, it would not be the typical odor that you would associate with decomposition. Decomposition, uh, which really creates the odor, uh, usually takes about 24 hours to develop. As for whether someone could smell decomposition or death? No, I don't. I think that's too early for that. So we've just poked holes, some of them gaping in the initial evidence laid out by the prosecution in the case of Justin Ross Harris. Defense attorney Jack Martin says he can't understand how prosecutors would let this happen. You know, it's, the thing about it, the prosecution has a pretty simple case. I mean, they have a terrible case here where a man's son died in the most horrible way. I mean, at the very minimum, it's negligence, it seems. Uh, and, and But instead of just going with what the facts really show, they always try to exaggerate, to, to make it even worse than it really is. Instead of just being honest with the facts, let the facts go where they lead you, uh, they instead try to make it even worse than it really is, uh, unnecessarily. It's just a habitual uh, problem with law enforcement. Even more evidence that is favorable to Harris has come out during a series of pretrial hearings. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. I'm Ernie Suggs. 
And I'm Ned Ravone. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. One is very straightforward, and it came out in the first probable cause hearing. Here is Harris's lawyer, Maddox Kilgore, cross-examining Stoddard. Did you ever ask him directly if he had any kind of physical limitations which might impair his ability to see or hear his job? Not directly. Okay. Would that be something that would be relevant to your investigation? No. If he had a physical limitation, that would not be relevant to your investigation? If he had a physical limitation, he couldn't be operating a motor vehicle. You'd have to be able to turn and see your rear view mirrors. You'd have to be able to operate that vehicle. Okay. Would you be surprised to know that Ross is completely deaf in his right ear? Did you know that? I did not know that. The significance of that is that Cooper was seated behind and to the right of his father, just inches away. So Harris might not have heard his son if Cooper made any sounds. Much was made at the initial hearings about Harris seeking to pursue a, quote, child-free lifestyle, unquote. This had to do with his visits to the social media site known as Reddit. Reddit is a vast website divided into subreddits, or individual categories or interests. One of these subreddits was called Child Free, which Harris visited. This would seem to give the prosecution a clear motive for Ross Harris to kill his son. I know. You have visions of a bunch of irresponsible adults talking about how to off their kids and embark on a thrilling child-free existence. But that's not close to what they described in court. Reddit is made up of posts by Reddit members who have something to say about this topic or that. Harris clicked on three such posts. And you, you didn't find any evidence that um, he was a member of any subgroup or subculture um, called Child Free, did you? No, sir. Stoddard also testified that police could find no evidence that Harris followed any groups or subcultures on the Internet espousing a child-free lifestyle. Nothing like that was saved on his favorites or bookmarked on his computer. And after these couple of minutes in April, you never found that there was any other sort of contact with that particular, that particular um, top topic? No, sir. No evidence was located. Right. At one pretrial hearing, Kilgore laid out exactly what Harris looked at. One of the posts was from a 23-year-old blind man who was ranting about how hard it is to get a date because he's blind. Is that fair to say? That's fair to say. All right. One of the posts was from a lady who had posted a photo of her IUD um, and suggested that she was pregnant, and then she was sharing the responses from her friends for that posting. Is that a fair characterization of what it was? That's fair. Okay. And then the third one was from a young lady who was speaking with a family member uh, who was apparently um, had just gotten out of prison. And this family member was trying to talk her into having a baby and then giving it to the parolee. Is that, is that a, a fair characterization? Yes, sir. Why was this such a big deal? Kilgore wanted to know. All right. So when we heard about child-free, 
as relates to motive. Mm -hmm. Is that what you were talking about? That's the side I was talking about, yes. That's it. Okay. None of that suggests that he adheres to some philosophy of murdering his child, does it? No, sir. No. But it sounded good in the probable cause hearing, didn't it? It sounds good now. It's still a child-free site that he went to. Sure. He clicked on multiple times. Curious, maybe? Maybes. Maybes. And here's something else that came out in one of those pretrial hearings, something most curious. Some of the women Harris met during his online philandering came to his defense after he was charged with Cooper's murder. He may have wanted to have sex with them, they said, but he loved his little boy. It's the state's position that all of this sexually related evidence is somehow evidence of, of motive. But in, re in reviewing the discovery and listening to these interviews, his communications with these other women demonstrate only love and pride in his son, Cooper. In one court hearing, Kilgore provided specific examples. Let's start with one woman with whom Harris had a relationship, according to Kilgore. But what did she tell the police? Well, the recording that we have says that she told the police that Ross loved Cooper more than anything, so much that he would never leave his wife because he wouldn't do that to Cooper. That's what was actually conveyed to the detective. What she said was, he loved that baby more than I've ever seen him love anything. They interviewed her a second time. Ross always talked about Cooper. He sent pictures of Cooper, told her that Cooper was his world, told her he would never get divorced because we wouldn't want to mess up Cooper's life, told her Cooper was his pride and joy, talked about Cooper all the time. I don't think he could imagine a life without Cooper. Kilgore then turned his attention to a second woman who was a minor when Harris first started texting her. He's reading a transcript of her interviews with police. Well, what does she say? She says, I know he loved Cooper a lot. I don't know how to show you. I mean, if there is any other way I can prove to you that he would never do anything to harm Cooper. He talked about Cooper wanting to go to the University of Alabama. He talked about how smart Cooper was. Can I tell you one more thing? Can I do anything to defend him? Not because he's my friend, but because I honestly don't believe he could do something like that. Just let me know, okay? She was interviewed a second time. And when asked if Ross would say he wanted to end his relationship with his wife, her response, her recorded response was no, never. He said he would never leave her. Here's even another woman with whom Harris exchanged messages of a sexual nature on a private messaging app. Three weeks before Cooper's death, Ross communicated with this person about his son and characterized Cooper as perfect. Two months before Cooper's death, Ross communicated with this person by describing his relationship with his wife as great and characterized his son, Cooper, as the best ever. He's the best. The individuals that I've just addressed here, 
these are the folks, these are the folks that the state says Mr. Harris is communicating with that demonstrates he wants to get rid of his son. These are the folks. And now we turn to the Whisper campaign. One of Harris's preferred tools for hooking up was an online social platform called Whisper. Stoddard explains the world of Whisper during a hearing. Whisper is a social media site. Um, people were able to put, they call them Whisper, their texts or posts that they can post, um, supposedly anonymously, and they can just say whatever you want to say. Um, anybody out there having a bad day? Anybody want to have sex? And does the whole range. Um, and what they'll do is they'll put a whisper out there, and it's usually locally. Um, they go by the phone GPS, and they try and keep it within a localized area. So when you're whispering and talking to people, normally it's within a certain location. These people are pretty close to you. Did the defendant utilize this whisper application? Yes, he did. Okay. How often? There are over 5,000 whisper conversations and 40,000 actual texts um, on his phone. At one pretrial hearing, Stoddard grudgingly owned up to making a wrong assumption in the early days of the investigation. Remember what the initial whisper post said? I hate being married with kids. The novelty has worn off, and I have nothing to show for it. During the hearing, Kilgore asked Stoddard, Did you initially believe Harris made the I hate being married with kids post? That's not correct. It's not correct? Not correct. You did not believe that he posted that? Mm-mm. You never thought. Well, we first we talked. first saw it. When we first saw it, Mr. Kilgore, yes, um, there was a. Sus- you know, I did suspect sure. that he had written it and posted it, but we did send out a court order um, to Whisper, and after receiving it back, now of course it's anonymous. You don't get the person's name, but when we received it back, and due to the number of posts she had made and location that it was showing from, it's believed that someone else posted that. And you learned that fairly recently? No. All right. Bottom line is, you were wrong. I was not. You were wrong. You thought that he typed this out, and that's what you were proceeding under. You were wrong. At the very beginning, there was a chance that he typed it. We didn't know. Ashley Merchant is a criminal defense attorney in Marietta who has closely followed this case. Although she has no connection to it, she is decidedly among those who find it hard to believe Harris intentionally killed his son. Every time you look at this, you just keep thinking that there's got to be something more. What am I missing? How is this murder? I just hope that the jury can get past the fact that he's an adulterer, get past the fact that he may be a little freaky, you know? And and I mean, beyond just freaky, but you can look at it in all these different ways beyond all of that, and just because he may not be a good husband doesn't mean that he's a murderer and doesn't mean that he's a bad dad. I asked Merchant what it would have meant if Harris had actually posted that he hated being married with kids. Oh, that's extremely damning. I mean, that's that's motive right there. That's you saying, you know, I'm, I, I'm sick of my family, I want my family gone, and then you going out and doing something to, to harm your family. I mean, it's extremely damaging. So if he thought that that's what he said, I can understand how he treated this as a murder case. The mistake raises questions, Merchant said. And in this case, how do you overlook something like that? Or why weren't you more careful, I guess, is the, is the next question. Why, if you're an officer and you've got someone's life in your hands and you've got the initial charging decision, whether or not to charge this as a murder, I mean, it started with Stoddard. If Stoddard had viewed this going in as an accident, the whole investigation would have been treated as an accident. 
And because he made that, whatever you want to call it, mistake, because he made that mistake, the whole case turned into a murder case. Cobb County authorities assert that they have a lot of reasons to believe that Harris intended to kill his son, that their whole case doesn't turn on something that turned out to be a mistake. Even though Harris didn't make that initial post about hating married life with kids, his whisper exchange with the woman who did is expected to be a powerful piece of evidence against him. After all, he did say, quote, I love my son and all, but we both need escapes, unquote. Harris may have been saying he just needed time off from being a father occasionally, or he may have meant that he planned to kill his son. Because they've got him charged with malice murder, and malice murder means that you intentionally kill another person. That's District Attorney Danny Porter of Gwinnett County, an Atlanta suburb. Like most prosecutors in Georgia, he's kept up with the Harris case, and he thinks Harris's escape post could be used against him to damning effect. If the facts were that, for instance, prior to the day that he left the baby in the car, that he was engaged in the, in the sexting activity, and that on the day that he left the baby in the car, there was some text, you know, I love my kid, but we all need an escape. If those facts laid out, you could almost argue it was at that moment he decided that he was not going to drop the baby off at daycare. He was going to he was going to leave him in the car and he was going to get his escape. Also, don't forget that Harris sent that note as he sat next to his son at Chick-fil-A on the morning of his son's last day on Earth. He claims he forgot Cooper was in the car when he left the restaurant and went to work. At the very least, the text shows that he was thinking about Cooper only moments before he claims to have forgotten all about him. So it's not surprising Kilgore has done all he can to try to punch holes in that statement whenever it comes up in court. In one of Harris's actual posts, he said that his wife gets upset when he wants to go out with friends. Here's Kilgore questioning Detective Stoddard again, and he appears to score a point when it comes to the question of motive. And if I understand the argument correctly, is you're suggesting that he um, misses going out with his friends, that that is motive for murder. I think it's one little piece. One little piece? One little piece. Okay. Couldn't just be that maybe he just misses hanging out with his friends. Of course. But it could also be motive. Motive's a guess. And... Motive can be a guess. We're guessing. This is what we think. So, motive is a guess? Establishing motive is part of the foundation of a murder case. Always. If you can't prove that a person had a reason to kill, it becomes far more difficult to prove that he committed murder. In the Harris case, the state's assertions of motive are amorphous and indeed have evolved. First, the state suggested that Harris killed his son to collect insurance money. Then, it posited that Harris and his wife, Leanna, conspired to kill their boy. Suspicion rapidly moved away from Leanna. Then the state came up with the child-free lifestyle motive. From everything I've looked at and from everyone I've talked to, there appears to be no smoking gun in the Harris case. And Ashley Merchant makes this point in Harris's favor because he's unlike most criminal defendants. 
I mean, for me, I think it, it, it doesn't make sense because he's an IT guy. He's a smart guy. So you don't have a defendant, which we often have, who has a low IQ and maybe isn't smart enough to figure things like that out. You've got a you've got a very smart, IT-savvy defendant who is going to know, if he's planning on killing his child, that the authorities are going to go and look. They're going to go look at his phone. They're going to look at his computer. And he's at his office computer doing this. He's on his own personal cell phone. So it, it tells me that he didn't plan on killing his child. Because had he planned on that, he probably would have been more careful about using his own phone, his own computer to do all these activities that, you know, where he's out sexting people. He, he wouldn't want them to know that. So he'd take a little, bit, a, a little bit more of an effort to try and hide that activity. We'll talk a lot more about trial strategy in episode three, but I can predict this with certainty. Prosecutor Boring is going to hammer Harris over and over and over again with the proof of his infidelities and his bizarre secret life, sending tens of thousands of text messages. I can also predict that this will have a devastating effect on the jury. The suggestion that Harris wanted to be free of his family and swing with multiple partners may be enough to set that jury against him. Here's Boring in court talking about the picture Harris paints of himself in his texting and sexting. Um, he says numerous times, and you'll see this in the argument when we make argument, he refers to himself as a sex addict or that he is addicted to sex and cannot get enough of this and enough women. Uh, he says at one point that uh, he, one post, he misses being single, just wants to go out and do things, uh, not that language, but with a lot of girls, get drunk and have fun. Boring has made it a point to highlight one exchange from Harris's gigantic texting archive, and you'll be hearing about it again in the trial. Uh, he talks about being the guitarist in a church while they're in the middle of this conversation. They've had sexual uh, conversations back and forth. He brings up that he's a guitarist in the church. She responds, quote, but you still exercise the thought of being with someone else when you're married? Hmm. The defendant responds, yep. She then asks him, does your conscience ever kick in? He responds, nope. The person CH then asks, what are you going to do about it? And at that point he says, I don't know. This is two weeks before Cooper's death. Next on Breakdown, the slippery definition of criminal negligence and Leanna Harris, betrayed by her husband, vilified on social media. Did his wife ever say anything to him about what he said to police? She asked him, um, she had him sit down and he starts going through this and she looks at him and she's like, well, did you say too much? Season two of Breakdown, Death in a Hot Car, Mistake or Murder, is a production of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. The story is reported and told by Bill Rankin, produced by Richard Hallix. Audio production by Chris Basta of Bare Knuckles Creative. The music for Breakdown was composed and performed by Bo Emerson, Chris Nicholson, and Chris Basta. Special thanks to Burt Roten, Ross Cavett, Chris Nicholson, and Buddy Hall. <laughs>